and Poetry. I'm your host, John Eversall. Today we are joined by the poet Kevin Gooden. His latest book of poems, Upper Level Disturbances, directly challenges modern society in at least one respect. The poems found here are the result of humility, the opposite of boasting, the genuine result of a life earnestly lived. We meet a speaker whose daily experiences, which involve working dangerously or dangerously at rest, seems nearly shorn of his fellow human beings, and in fact often feels that his poems might be the only communication he has with anyone beyond the forests and rivers and beasts that populate his verse. Ultimately, however, Kevin Gooden is a poet who is generously private. His voice is totally singular in expression, but also clearly our own. We might not entirely relate to his physical labor, his actual work, but his spiritual labor and work is undoubtedly ours. But perhaps what is most powerful about these poems, poems haunted by the natural and immaterial world, is that the poet, unlike most of us, is fiercely inner-directed, acting in the world not based on established norms, but moving according to his own morality, calibrated and recalibrated by suffering and grace. Kevin Gooden, welcome to New Books and Poetry. Well, thank you for letting me be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Before we uh, dive into your work, I just want to... you know, one of the things that struck me when I picked up your book is reading your bio. It is very clear that uh, there are certain things about your biography that um, matter to you. And you, in fact, seem to want to know, have the reader kind of know certain things about you. And I wanted to kind of peel back some of those layers. Um, for instance, you know, it says you were born in Montana and raised on the Flathead Indian Reservation, where your stepfather and brothers are tribal members. And then, unfortunately, there's a period mark, and the biography moves on. And it's like, what? I want to hear more. So I was wondering if uh, you can kind of tell us about your beginnings and uh, tell us about the Flathead Indian Reservation and uh, your family a little bit. Sure. Um, So I was uh, born in Missoula, Montana, and um, lived there until I was four years old. And my mother and uh, biological father divorced, and my mother remarried <clears throat> and to my stepfather. And shortly thereafter, we moved up to Ronan, Montana, which is on the Flathead Indian Reservation. And my stepfather was a tribal member. Um, and so it, it was, to me, it seemed natural that life would be that way. Um, of course, until we would go to, say, uh, Kmart off the reservation, and um, I, of course, we would we would get uh, funny looks from from people because there's a my stepfather is very dark, and my mother is dark haired, and then there's this albino child running around mm-hmm. amongst them. So it, it was it was interesting that way. Um, it wasn't until I was probably 11 or 12 that um, 
a distinction was was made for me between uh, students or or I should say friends that were um, native and myself. Uh, at that time, they did things that white people weren't allowed to do, and so there was a bit of exclusion, I guess you could say. Yeah, how do you think that kind of that kind of distinction growing up kind of impacted you and and did you have lots of questions for your parents on how to navigate kind of this dual cultural world? It was um it was it was slightly difficult um and a bit troubling for me. Um I realized that suddenly I was the other. Mm-hmm. Um where, you know, if we went off the uh, reservation to Missoula or went shopping or something like that, it, I fit in with people. When I was on the reservation, I didn't fit in so much. Um, but I, at, at a certain point, I was okay with that. I realized that um, I was not a member of the tribe. I would never be a member of the tribe. Um, and at a certain point... I decided that maybe I should go find, quote unquote, my own tribe. Indeed. Later on. Yeah. What did you attended high school in Montana? Is that right? I did. Um, I went to Ronan High School until uh, the last semester of my senior year, and then I, I transferred off the reservation uh, to Sealy Swan High School, which is. Um, a very small logging town. I think it has about 700 people in it. Mm-hmm. What was and, your... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, you know, when you were kind of struggling with all these uh, uh, feelings of belonging and not belonging, was your family just generally supportive of that struggle? And what was kind of the impact of that struggle on them? I actually kept it pretty quiet. You did, yeah. I did. It was, it was more of an internal situation. Uh I didn't say anything to my mother or my stepfather or my younger brothers. Um, I just dealt with it internally and until it was time for me to, that I felt it was time for me to leave the reservation. Yeah, that's really, that's really fascinating. And then uh, after high school, is it, you ended up at the University of Montana, is that right? I did. It, I took a circuitous route. Um, after high school, I worked for the Forest Service um, <clears throat> in the town where I graduated in Sealy Lake, Montana. Uh, there were just a couple of options for students who graduated there. Uh, mm-hmm. One was the military, one was to go straight into college, and the other was to work in the woods. And so um, I chose to work in the woods. Can you tell us a little about that work? It, it- Sounds like you walked right into the wilderness. Well, it, it was a wilderness, that's, that's for certain. Um, what it originally happened was um, in 1988, which dates me, <laughs> um, there were a lot of fires in Montana, and they began running short of people. And so I stepped up and uh, said, okay, I'll, I'll fight fires. And I didn't know if I was going to be strong enough to do it because I was a pretty skinny 
kid. Mm-hmm. And um, suddenly I found that I I loved the work. I loved being able to test myself physically out in the natural world um, and be in situations of risk. Yeah, I can... Uh, and also um, engaging with one very serious element of the earth, of course, a fire, and and surviving that. And I, I think that uh, the adrenaline that that produced um, was something that I became addicted to because I I, I fought for fires for ten seasons. That's an amazing period of time. And yeah, when you talk about like uh, getting addicted, I was just recently uh, watching a, a documentary about a war photographer and they kind of speak of the same thing that they're kind of drawn back to it, even though they see the hazards and risk involved. At the time you were doing that kind of forestry work, dealing with the fires, um, did poetry at all play a part in your life at that point or did that come later? Well, I had always been scribbling things down, um, even as a child. But when you're you're working with with men who are fairly rough, um, and you're, I, I I moved up into a kind of a, a position of of leadership. Um, you you don't want to be sitting there scribbling down poems when you're you're leading <laughs> rough men into a dangerous situation with fire. They're, they're not going to trust you if you say, oh, yes, by the way, I write poetry. <laughs> I'm glad you really brought up that point because your poems, you know, and we'll definitely get to them in a minute, but they are undoubtedly uh, uh, tough and and there is a undoubtedly masculine quality about it. And it's interesting that uh, when one is around uh, other men who you would consider like tough, rough, uh, engage the physical world in, in kind of a very deliberate way that, yeah, the revealing that maybe you like to scribble poems is, seems like a preposterous uh, thing to share with them. Uh, did anybody at all know you were into that at all, or did you kind of keep this? You, you, have, you know, it's interesting because it's like I think guys in general sometimes have one foot uh, on this kind of tough world. Well, if you have any sensitivity whatsoever, you're kind of hiding that from from the tougher world. Did you... Uh, I mean, you just kind of kept that thing, those things to yourself. I, yeah, I, I kept it to myself. I didn't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> you know, when when I was uh, in a leadership role, then you know, you you have a a walkie-talkie and you're you're listening to all of this stuff happening on the fire, and you're you're directing, you know, uh, retardant planes and so forth. Um, I would actually be sitting there making it look like I was writing down information from the fire and it mm-hmm. would be uh, a snippet of language here and there that would ultimately, in the off-season, go into something that could be considered a poem. So That is fantastic. How did you eventually, after you said 10 seasons of this kind of work, and it must have kind of worked right into your identity, what at what point did you say hey, I'm going to walk away from this? Well, um, one, I at a certain point during that time I had worked on um, 
what's called a, a hotshot crew, which is an, a fairly elite crew. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody has to be in really, really super good shape, and the work is more difficult than uh, normal. And um, I was on that crew for three years, and I I started thinking, is this really the thing that I want to do with my life? And all indications were that I should. Um, everybody called me a 20-year man. And mm-hmm. um, I thought to myself, no, no, th- this is more transitory than that. I'm going to move on to something else. And and what did you eventually, is that when you decided to go to uh, school? Well, I'd, I'd been sort of going um, to school. I started college when I was 21 mm-hmm. and would go to school here and there. I was sort of on the six-year plan. And uh, I just, um, I felt that that's the place where my energy needed to go. So I ultimately said, you know, I'm I'm done. I finished up my undergraduate degree and then um, applied to graduate school and was accepted at the University of Massachusetts. Yeah, and uh, did you pl- uh, did you end up applying to a lot of MFA programs? And it's so weird the the stories you're telling about ten years firefighting to suddenly uh, being an MFA program. It's interesting. Did you? Is that was that an easy choice for you to choose UMass Amherst, or did, were you kind of thinking, you know, anywhere all over the map where you wanted to go? Maybe. Well, um, I applied to two places. I applied to the University of Montana mm-hmm. and to the University of Massachusetts. And um, the University of Montana, I, if I remember correctly. I was going to be given a, a TA ship, <clears throat> and the uh, University of Massachusetts wasn't going to give me anything, so mm-hmm. I chose the University of Massachusetts. <laughs> and, and uh, actually, actually, that's slightly facetious. Um, Daryl Wire, who uh, teaches at the University of Massachusetts, actually spent a semester teaching in Montana, and I learned a lot from her, and I felt that maybe that would be a good place for me because I liked what she taught. Yeah, how did uh, how did your poetic sensibility fit in at UMass? Not that UMass has any particular reputation aesthetically, but did you find that your poems uh, fit that community pretty well? The, one, the thing that I, I really liked about that program was that there was a diversity. They didn't, they didn't make you write um, in a particular way. You sort of evolved into your own um, style or voice, if you want to call it that. Um, that being said, I, I, um, my work was a lot different than other people's. Mm-hmm. And uh, how long were you in that program? I started in um, the fall of '99 and lingered until uh, 2004. Yep. And uh, what do you think of? Uh because I've lived in that area as well, as you know, um, I really, really enjoyed the kind of mix of academic culture with 
kind of a, an agrarian rural uh, landscape. Uh, did you enjoy it out there? I ended up actually living there for about 10 years. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, uh, wow, I, I, I seem to do things in segments of 10. Yes. <laughs> but I loved it immensely. I felt that that was, uh, of all the places that I had uh, been, um, that one actually felt more like home. Yeah, it's where you felt most comfortable in your own skin. Yeah, and you know, I was—I I felt that that was a, a place for me was um, a place of great flourishing. I was able to do the things that I wanted to do, um, and you know, you could—it was such a, a vibrant community. You know, you could go here to Maj Solomon Reed. Um, you could go and uh, meet people and just sit down and talk about poetry if you wanted or overhear people all around you talking about literature and it, it was just sort of a wonderful community and then of course you could go back as I did at, to the little farm that I lived on and birth lambs after having coffee so uh, you know it was it was the best of both worlds so you you know at the MFA thesis how did that um, kind of work into your first book because today we're talking about upper level disturbances, which is your third book. Um, how did the MFA uh, impact your your first book of poems? It was uh, the time that I was allowed to spend uh, just living in poetry without having to, uh, you know, deal with other aspects of living. That was just that was such a blessing, um, and a lot of the poems in the first book were written on that farm in Sunderland that I lived on. Mm. So it was um, it was a very important time for me. And Definitely, support, Definitely, and uh, you know I do kind of want to transition over to uh, upper level disturbances, but I'm really curious to hear how does this book. Uh, how does this book, as like a sibling to the other two, um, how do you kind of view it as, you know, after going through three manuscripts now, uh, do you see a change in your, uh, I don't know, just like how do you uh, compare the books? Well, the first child is always special. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, each of them are special, but uh, the first one is always the first one. But in upper level disturbances, I think the work begins to, I don't know, I, I want to say take more risks maybe, um, both with uh, subject matter and uh, maybe with language. Yes, I could definitely, I could definitely see some risk going on there. Your poetry, uh, I don't know if anything is, uh, is quite, I don't know, is being written. I don't think anybody's writing poems like this at all. Um, let's, I, oh, I remember what I wanted to ask you is, is this title, I, I could be wrong and I'm, I don't think I am, but I didn't, uh, I never saw the title pop up. Uh, explicitly in any of the poems, but don't don't tell anybody if that's right or wrong. But can you tell us about the uh, the title a little bit? Why upper level disturbances? 
Um, I chose upper level disturbances, and it, it isn't in any of the poems. Okay. Uh, <laughs> hey, I said not to say any birds. No, but yeah, I didn't see it in there, and I, that was really curious to me, you know. Okay. Well, uh, in when you're you're dealing with um, fire, weather is always an important aspect. You have to keep track of the weather, and um, when a cold cell comes in over the top of a of a warm cell, or vice versa, uh, there's danger. There's um, things that are going to happen that are uncontrollable. And so an upper-level disturbance is sort of um, one of the situations that you have to watch out for. Definitely. Definitely. It, it can, on, a, on a fire, it can create, um, you know, the, uh, the cold cell can sort of fall in on itself, and that creates a what they call a firestorm and you know there's things are waylaid and uh lost well i think it's a the the title was definitely a mystery to me but i did a little bit of research and but how you described it uh i think it's the best description i've heard well i am dying to hear uh you read uh some poems and we can discuss some of them um if you could read, I think uh, I always I'm in love with the first poem of any book of poems because well, that seems like a big choice for a poet, is you know. Uh, uh, so if you could just do us the honor of uh, reading, come take these words from me. Certainly. <clears throat> come take these words from me. Once through my town there were rivers. Thin trees rippled along the spillways. Morning pierced our breath. Two doves on the rail bobbing their heads. I am my ghost alone. I stand where there is no water, thinking water. The laws of nature determine all the grief one eye can hold. Thistles were his winding sheet, my father. Did he go smooth and gentle? You bum... What cruder diction than moss? Though the great pine shove taproots down and call the black dirt home, though rivers still run though sickly through this town, or excuse me, though this town is not my town, I wander. Our saws are sharp and never idle long, and through the day we see the fires and transform the field jumble into lines. Far faces bleared by fire, who are you, that the bright mares of language stride forth their flames? I am never more than this, a green mind in a green world, and yet the kingdoms that come to my ear. I look out and know my place. I, because of love. In this, there is no recourse. In this, I am humble. If seeds be language, let them gather. Let them take these words. Thanks, Kevin. That was that was really really beautiful, and it made me think of how you were talking about taking risk. Um, you know, the pronoun "I" just ruthlessly uh, kind of candid in this poem and throughout the book. Was was that a particular risk for you? To I mean, there's even some of the language uh, strikes the contemporary ear in a refreshing way, but in ways that I think 
I don't know if certain contemporary ears could handle lines, for instance, like that the bright mares of language stride forth, you know, that is so uh, unapologetically beautiful. Um, and also in the poem, not only is the eye very prominent and uh, and never in kind of a way that is offensive, but also this idea of of a ghost of a particular uh, absence of of a father um, or of something. Can you talk about that a little with this poem about? And it seems to permeate throughout the collection that there's a particular absence going on. Um, there are. There's actually a few absences. Um, one, of course, is uh, the father figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, other people who have been prominent in uh, the speaker's life that uh, have vanished. Uh, friends, um, people involved in intimate relationships and so forth. So... It's that kind of cumulative loss that the I think that the speaker throughout these poems is is sort of trying to uh, carries with the speaker carries that loss with them and it gets heavier and then it suddenly towards the end of the book um, it sort of breaks into a a real um, coalescing of that loss into one particular person and one particular incident, I think. Yeah, it's, I, it's, it's as though the, the speaker is searching through all of these losses for sort of the um, the beginning of that loss. That is very, very fascinating, yeah. And that, you know, and maybe it's just a, as a result of the physical environment you're around, but, you know, the, the diction, the syntax is, is always kind of mixing with this more transcendent language. Uh, can you talk real quick about just how the material physical world kind of, um, how it presents itself to you as something that you interact with? It seems to be just very important to your work, uh, your engagement with with the material world. <clears throat> um, well, it's... it's uh it's the world that I I live on and, and live in, so it, it's hard to keep what is around me out of the poems. And when I'm, I guess you could say, uh, writing, I'm usually out walking around. I'm usually out, um, when I lived in Massachusetts, I would walk the, the tobacco fields and the, uh, the pastures and stuff around the house where I lived. Um, and here which is a very different landscape. Um, I, walk, I, I live on the, the Palouse now, which <clears throat> is basically huge fields of wheat uh, with not much in between them. And so I'm sort of walking out into the landscape here and, and not even looking for images, but just looking, letting the world um, enter my eyes and my head and turning itself into language. And um, when those words sort of stick in my mind, then I, I'll jot them down on a piece of paper or something in my pocket and and take them home 
and um, sit down and see if there's anything in those fragments that I wrote down that will work itself uh, into a poem. And, yeah, so, thanks for sharing that uh, that process. I mean, it's, it just feels sort of private when you talk about it. Um, um, if, yeah, go ahead. The uh, I, I guess I don't see a barrier between myself and the physical world, so... Um, that's interesting that it's not an antagonistic one that I don't see how it could be antagonistic if you're walking through fields of weed, I guess, because that just, in a way, there's a lack of busyness to that. There's a, like, I don't know, a serenity to it. That's, I wonder if language is more difficult to apprehend when the landscape is kind of erasing you with its beauty, you know? Uh, yeah, language is, is always, <clears throat> for me at least, it's, it's, Ephemeral. You're always trying to catch something that you can't quite catch. And language, for me, is the only way that I have to catch any essence of that thing that I'm after. Um, and so I, I try and use whatever means with language, if it's a antiquated diction or, um, you know, a surprising imagery or something. I, I'm trying to catch that essence that... that just left the room. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought up that you mentioned the antiquated diction. You employ it, you know, uh, several times throughout the collection, and I think that's what I was getting to when sometimes the contemporary ear will hear it and be like, "What?" You know, it's it's so surprising to encounter in a in a contemporary book of poems, and yet it has, I think, reached such a when I hear it, it it is a novel sound. It's a sound I recognize, but to hear it reintegrated into uh, a contemporary poem is really a, it's startling to encounter and it kind of reconnects me as a reader to uh, just a, a time of poetry that was generated uh, by just some sort of brute human experience. I don't know. Uh, but I was wondering if we could turn to another poem. Sure. Um, I would love for you to read How the Soil Dampens for the loss of thee. I'm turning my pages. There we are. <clears throat> How the soil dampens for the loss of thee. My horses do not wander the pasture. The screep of a bird far and hidden in the gray inflections across the landscape. One eye of every beast is closed lightly. Silver lines of slugs on road grit. Some dark shape in the mist, some dread thing emerging, and soon the rain. My horses are not my horses. The barn a borrowed thing from a time I do not remember. The sudden hallucinations of the lost, where every direction becomes home. Some kind of holding pattern that allows me no peace. My horses were never horses which is the world I have left, the delicate cheekbones of the misbegotten. Oh, man, thank you so much. Uh, you know, I've been spending so much time with your poems leading up to this interview that I was really I was really looking forward to hearing you read these. Um, this poem in particular strikes me with the lines, my horses are not my horses, the barn, a borrowed thing from a time I do not remember. And it it reminds me of kind of this 
maybe if it's a, I don't know if it's a Christian idea or the idea that, uh, you know, that we're stewards or just kind of temporary managers of the things that will be here long before we're, you know, long after we're gone. Um, is that kind of maybe how you kind of see the things around you that you are sort of just lucky to experience and that you are a steward during your time here? I, I tend to think that's often how I feel. Um, you know, we, we, we build barns, we, we buy horses and oftentimes the horses outlive us. And so, and really, what is what is ownership? We don't really own anything. We're here for such a short time. So I, I I tend to think that that's the way I feel that we're, you know, we're here for what seventy, eighty years, mm-hmm. and and that's not that much time. And yet, it's amazing how much energy a lot of us put into the possession of things and it just makes that word borrowed thing in your poem strike me even more and another word that came up in this poem that I found throughout uh, not too heavily but in some of the other poems and I think I'm kind of nerding out I'm kind of being a nerd on your poems here but I I promised myself I would ask you this is the word uh, dampens It, it, it appears throughout the poems and dampens is of course like you know uh the presence of moisture, but also um, something that is weakened. And it made me think that the speaker in these poems uh, seemed to uh, just kind of ebb and flow between great vigor and and also that the speaker is ultimately put in his place by just certain realities. And that word dampen really stuck with me that it's uh, something that's weakened. Is there anything you want to say about that word? Well, um, I'm trying to think how to put it in a proper way. So um, after uh, fighting fires for that period of time that I did for 10 years, um, I actually felt pretty invincible. And um, it wasn't until later that I started to find out that actually um, that was not the case, that uh, indeed there had been some damage done to my lungs. Mm-hmm. And and so to go from the situation of feeling as though one is immortal to um, a situation where one feels very mortal and maybe uh, the time is not on their side, as compared to other people. Um, I would assume that that was, um, I don't think the choice of that word was uh, conscious. Right. But I would assume that um, that was very much on my mind during the writing of these poems. Well, thanks for, uh, yeah, thanks for uh, diving in that. It's always kind of when you've been writing a long time and somebody just suddenly points out like, it's kind of like pointing out, like, hey, you have some food on your face. Hey, you've been using this word a lot. Tell me about it. <laughs> it's a little unfair at times because you well, work no, so no. intuitively, you know? Um, I, I tend to think that some, well, there, there's a certain amount of writers that write from what they're obsessed with. Mm-hmm. And indeed, over time, that obsession sort of uh, moves a little bit, uh, sort of fans out. And... 
we 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 keep using those words that uh, help us get further into our obsession, and and so dampen seems to be one of those words that I'm obsessed with and I'm slightly repetitive with. Yeah, let's uh, let's move on to another poem, and we're not going to go far because I'm just having you jump one page to page 21, and it is. I don't know if you could say the title is untitled, but you have several poems in the in the book that are specifically untitled, huh. and yet their subject matter and they they're scattered throughout the book. They don't appear in any sort of sequence. Um, can you tell us a little about the relationship between those poems, and before you read uh, the one on page twenty one? Um, yeah, I can. Uh my first job in, in high school was uh, working in a slaughterhouse. It, it was a small family-run, um, it was a slaughterhouse and a meat-smoking uh, place. They made smoked hams and so forth and pepperoni sticks. And um, they also sold uh, prime cuts up in the front. They had a little um, store. And um, because I was so young, I was, I, I was 15 when I started working there. Uh, I, I wasn't able to run the the knives or do anything like that. Um, my job was to to clean out the gut barrels initially and to grind up the meat to make sausage and and so forth. Uh, and I I actually enjoyed that work. It was uh, I was just a skinny kid and I was able to go in and 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 work amongst men. Mm. It was a job that a lot of people um, quite smartly would not do, but for some reason I I enjoyed doing the work that nobody else could. <laughs> I think that's a great introduction to this poem. Uh, <laughs> you can read it anytime. All right. So, um, untitled. I am made of gut barrels steaming in rain, steel hooks swaying the rails, as quarters and halves enter the cooler, and the door slams shut, dust from the bone saw weighing the air, as blood seeks the lowest place to mingle, to sicken. The smell of blood, bandsaw wheels, fresh oiled and torquing, cigarette smoke rising lazy to the lights, blue sockets of shoulders opened, back straps laid bare and set upon scales between jokes, liver, heart, tongue, tripe, and the brains of veal calves thrown to buckets, Splashed with brine, the towel-slicked knives washed, sharpened, and spread across the bench to dry. Thanks. That uh, God, that the last image is really just amazing. And I noticed in a lot of the poems, there's a, there, there's saws. There is just kind of what I'm getting a sense from what we've talked about, kind of the work you've done, um, and and your poems as well. That there, you have been privy to and witness to just a particular amount of kind of moral danger and and that there is a violence uh, happening around you in your work and that it, it affects even kind of biological bodies in the slaughterhouse, for instance. Can you talk at all about how that being surrounded by those kind of dangers and that violence has kind of sort of impacted your work? Um, I believe it's uh, it's it's impacted 
I guess, the way that I engage the world. And indeed, um, you know, it becomes the subject matter. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, the, it's the world that I know. And, um, you know, the, the pieces about working in the slaughterhouse, they're just, they're, they're vignettes of these memories that sort of smacked me in the, in the face when I was writing this manuscript. They just kept cropping up. Mm-hmm. And I actually thought that <clears throat> the manuscript was just going to be a book of slaughterhouse poems. Wow. But they, they, they stopped, thankfully. <laughs> but it's, um, I didn't want the poems to have any sort of um, bias, you know, like saying, oh, this is terrible, horrendous, what's happening to the animals, and so on. I just wanted to be able to witness the work. And and I think that's what happens in, in all of the poems. The poems are poems of, of witnessing. They're, they see what's going on around them, and they, they, they don't shirk away from the violence that is, is always there in the world. I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah, the, the poems, uh, the untitled poems, particularly in the slaughterhouse, I read them many, many times before it, before the thought even occurred to me that if there was some sort of uh, social or political statement being made because they very just much felt like uh, one was just witnessing back to the reader what was seen and and that imagery never, while the imagery was visceral and sensual in a tough way to uh, read sometimes, it, it, it gives the reader, or at least me, a great amount of freedom just to, just to kind of experience it. Um, I want to move on to another poem, Kevin, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, let's go ahead and move on to page 24, where soft as when a body struck a it's found, and you can start that poem whenever you're ready. Great. <clears throat> Soft as when a body struck. In the overlap of memory and blood, in voices of blood, the clotting, the staunch, flesh shorn from them, in ribbons of musculature smooth and cooling, glossy strands of life anonymous in my hands, back strap, shoulder cut, this loin and that, in the cartilage of the joints glowing grayly in the day, knuckle and hock, a few hairs stuck to them. In the throat, strange tube lying on the gravel. In the sockets, in the eyes of the sockets, that burst at the touch of a blade, drain down a face, and over the fingers that touch you now, when you twitch, dreaming. Thank you so much for that. And, and it gets back to that. You know, your poem's just like... And I guess a sort of compelling way, you know, remind me of that I am just this body that uh, can be hurt, it bleeds, it leaks, it can be damaged easily. And I think that, I think what is so great about your poems is they seem to be always wrestling with the fundamental conundrum of being a human being, that we have these vast interior lives, that we have dreams, hopes, loves, and never mind our engagement with language as poets, and yet your poems, which are you know um, you know the artistic expression, are simultaneously showing that interior amazement while describing and reminding the reader that you are just a material that uh, you know when when we pass what is the body 
And uh, I think that's really this this two-pronged thing your poems do is that they celebrate our interior life while ruthlessly reminding us that um, it is that we are on borrowed time to experience that. Um, yeah, let me let me have you, uh, if you don't mind, turn to page 34. Sure. Where uh, you have a sequence of poems that are titled Album. And when I when I read that title, I I thought of you know photo albums, and then I thought of I don't know musical albums. Do uh, you want to say anything about the uh, title at all? Like, how did you conceive these poems? Like, how did you how did you see this album? Well, <laughs> um, I saw it as just a, a collection of um, things that I remembered from. Uh, living in a few different places like uh, Montana and Massachusetts mm-hmm. and um, Lewiston, Idaho, actually, where I lived for a year before I moved out into the country. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's just a, an album of movements, maybe. Yeah, I really, I really like it. Uh, so this is uh, number seven in the sequence. Okay. Wind unsoils the field, and still we persist not knowing what comes next, hunting for some fissure between words where we, for a time, can remain. The corn cribs are empty, and my light is not yet finished, but altered, like snow that falls at four in the morning and snow that falls at freezing. And yet to stand abraded within, though the beasts gather at the sound I make up to bring them to fodder, as fields ripple and scarify, as the words hover above our ground, you and I in the redemptive dark. Thanks, Kevin. I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, and and some of the description on the back of your book kind of gets to this idea of, and and of the transcendent or the sublime. And there are mentions of kind of this idea of God. How do you, how do you kind of conceive of that? That, uh, I mean, it sounds like a horribly complex question. Like, Hey, what do you think of God? But how, (laughs) how does, there seems to be at least an acknowledgement that there's at least a suspicion that there is something going on beyond maybe our five senses, uh, but I could be wrong. I just wonder if you could speak to that. Yeah. Um, I do think, <clears throat> for me personally, um, growing up the way that I did, and my my um, mother and uh, stepfather are very devout, um, strict Catholics. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, and I for a time was, but I have greatly lapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think... Having that um, knowledge that the, or, or that that belief that God is tangible, God is is in the world. Um, that he, he, it's like um, the world is made of of God. You know, mm-hmm. God is woven through everything in the world, and and there's there's glimpses of that in the poems, and, and I, I think that's why the imagery that I, I use in the poems. Um, 
to me, I, it feels as though when I write those things down, the things that I see, um, that there's, just by having those words and the, the weight of those images stacked together, that at some point it's sort of the poem that I'm working on will sort of break into, um, I guess one could call it an epiphany or, or a, a revelation of, of something beyond what is here. And I think ultimately, you know, people use the term the other for the thing that they're trying to encapsulate. And I, I think that's, I, I, I tend to use the, the word God. Exactly. Others would use the word other or, or some other phrase. But I, I like to use that term because it's so weighted. It's so, um, with both good and bad things, that the poem has to be structured in such a way that the term God can um, be in the poem without it collapsing. No, I totally agree, and I'm very, I'm very sympathetic to uh, to your view of things for sure. Um, and it, it's interesting that you kind of uh, that the echo of Catholicism is there because often, you know, if one thinks of just the stories in the Gospels, that they are some of the most uh, ruthless, uh, <laughs> realistic uh, stories about human nature that I've ever encountered, and I don't see how anyone sees it otherwise. If you could uh, turn to page forty-one for another uh, another poem in in the family of the untitled. Sure. Uh, this is uh, again un- untitled. There is a light, you say, that shines out from inside. As I remember quartered hunks, I lifted gambril to gambril in the slaughterhouse of my youth. How pale tallow soaked the hands, stenched them beneath lethargic vacillations of frigid fluorescent lights. The change in twang of bandsaw arcing through bone, or the crack of a hatchet cleaving a joint suck of synovial draining brightly to the floor, or steam of hacksaws raking down spines, and the breath of men, language of men, the reek and steel and passing of time. Thank you so much for that. Um, your poems always, they always, the violence in them that, they're, that is described, I mean, it's really just trauma to a thing or the thing is altered by a trauma, and it always feels like the poems, and I think your language is, at least for me, always trying to crack open what is not, uh, what is invisible, that somehow if, that there can be a rupture in the physical to hopefully reveal the, the immaterial, and, but alas, who knows if that happens, and you, you said earlier, like, maybe we can catch a glimpse of it sometimes when, if we look hard enough. Um, I want to turn now to the final poem in the book on page 49, which is called Listening to Arvo Parts Fioralina. And if you could, there seems to be clearly some sort of narrative background to this poem. If you could talk about that for a moment. Sure. Um, so the poem is uh, dedicated to uh, Joe Grady. Um, he was shot 
uh, in a bar fight by Brent Brown in uh, Hungry Horse, Montana in 1997. Uh, Joe Grady and I grew up together. Um, he, he, had a, he had a pretty rough life. His mother abandoned both him and his father when Joe was uh, six weeks old, and so his father raised him. And his father worked at the mill. Uh, he worked uh, second shift. And, and, you know, I met Joe in, in kindergarten. And um, his father was never home when he got home from school. His father was always working. And so he was left to his own devices to entertain himself. And um, I was often brought along on his escapades. Um but at a certain point, um, things between him and I became complicated and, and fraught with peril. And um, he called to get a hold of me one time, and um, I decided not to call him back. Mm-hmm. And we all make decisions with people that we, we deal with and uh, whether to engage them or not at that particular time. And I don't know if my talking to Joe Grady would have changed the outcome of things. I highly doubt it. But one is left with, uh, or at least I am, left with the uh, remorse of not talking to him that final time. Um, and so years on after this happened and um, I was listening to Arvo Park's Fear Elena and it's a very simplistic piece of music um, it's the piece of music where he discovered his uh, what he called his tintinobuli and uh, basically it's a, a note cluster of three notes sort of written on an aleatoric line uh through this piece of music, and um, anyway, uh, I sort of had a situation where I was confronted again with uh, Joe Grady, so this is the piece. Listening to Arvo Part's Fear Alina. In the music, it is winter, and you have walked far. The heels of your hand-me-down boots taped up, hands raw and calloused by lumber. In the music, it's winter, chill of the breathed-in air. I look for pole star, but see only lies. You trying to close the red flower blooming from your chest, shamed by my implication. Music, winter, the white and bitumens of winter, You stand near me now and do not look away. The yellow buck teeth, dark hair cut in a slant above your eyes. The powder burns, the small hole, I need not touch to know. We are here now, within the music, within winter. You, who called for me, and I, who chose not to save you. That was a uh, that was really amazing, Kevin. It was heartbreaking, and it's your work is sometimes described not to be populated by other human beings, and that might be true. But when they do enter your poems, 
I think you treat them in a humane and gorgeous way. That was really great. Um, we're slowly getting to the end of our time. I was wondering if you would like to read any, like a new poem you might have laying around. Um, sure. I have one that um, <clears throat> I wrote well, probably a week ago or so. Um, it's called Furl, and it, it may be still rough, but we will see. <laughs> Furl. What will be relinquished? Whose small hand will you let slip from yours before it is time? 8.13 a.m., and the fields are greening there where the blackbirds gather, a bright blood thickening, ripples of a web, dust motes on it, scrims of pollinated air, all tractors of a spring billowing a black surge the silo wavers into, fusty dawn where little dying things of night, vague and haunt with many birds, a few birds, the nun, where a line waits to be drawn, evaporative hour, rabbit hour, hawk, Hawk's beak, hawk's bane, what flees a shadow but holds a harm, the give, the granted, the want as you live, the catch it all, the hold it all, the breathe it all home. Thanks, Kevin. That was, again, incredible. I think your your work is just keeps getting better. It keeps growing. And... Every poem that you've been writing is just, there's that, and it kind of goes back to what you said about facing the fires for those 10 seasons that you were totally uh, always confronted with risk, and it is exactly that risk that something's at stake that uh, is reflected in your poems, and I know a lot of a lot of poets wish they could say that about more of their poems. Um, that's all the time we have, and I just want to thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it's really been a pleasure. Well, thank you. Um, I'm honored to be interviewed. All right, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.